Joseph is going to invite you out to come and speak. Big props. How exciting. Um, let me pray for you. Lord, we just thank you for Joseph, Lord, and just thank you for all the preparation he's put in for this morning. And we just pray that you would just take the words that he's um, written and you would just um, just speak to each one of our hearts through him this morning. Amen. Amen. Brilliant. Well, good morning. We are continuing our series in Joshua, preparing ourselves for the promised land of the Salt House uh, in just a few weeks' time. And we've been looking over this series, first of all, at the strong faith that uh, God asks Joshua to have as he leads the people. And we know that God gives us courage as we put our trust in him. And we then looked at the strength of God himself, who is able to break down the walls, deal with the things uh, that stand in our way. And then this week, we want to look at how God asks us to be obedient as we follow him. And this morning, we, we come to a passage that uh, it's a bit more tricky uh, than the ones we've perhaps faced before. It's, it's slightly uh, less sort of encouraging. Uh, but I think it's really important, actually, for us to not just read the bits of scripture that make us feel nice uh, and warm and fuzzy. If, if we take scripture seriously, we need to be okay with those passages that are a little bit more complex, a little bit more uncomfortable. And if we're reading through Joshua with any care, then, then almost every chapter we come across something that, that should make us a little bit uncomfortable. There, there are at least a few more people impaled on spikes in this book than, than I'm normally comfortable with in my life. <laughs> the passage that we come to today is particularly tricky to deal with. Joshua has had this amazing victory at Jericho. All the plans for moving into the promised land seem to be going well. And then we come to chapter 7. And we're going to read together. I won't read the, the whole thing through. I'll paraphrase some bits along the way. Um, but it's going to come up on the screens as well. And it says this, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So Joshua sent these men up into the, the promised land to go and sort of spy and see what was going on. Uh, and they saw that the opposing army actually wasn't that big. And so they said, well, we can probably take these guys with just a few of us. Uh, and they then found that actually that wasn't the case. And they were being beaten back quite severely by the uh, enemy army. And it goes on. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destru destruction. 
And so God then asks Joshua to sort of gather up all of the people of Israel and then tribe by tribe, family by family, they, they narrow it down until just the culprit is left. Uh, and it becomes clear that this man called Achan was the guilty one. He admits it and he says that the plunder is uh, under his tent. And Joshua sends some men. They go and find the stolen goods and they bring it back to Joshua. And then it continues in verse 24. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So, it's not an easy passage to come to terms with. Uh, thank you, Jim, for that one. Uh, God decides that he's no longer going to help the people of Israel because one man among them has sinned. And the solution was to find out who it was, stone them and their family and their possessions, and then God was happy again. Now, that certainly raises some questions for me, some pretty tricky questions. Uh, and some of that I want to address uh, as we go through the passage today. Um, but I also don't want to get sidelined from what I think God is saying to us through this passage. Uh, and in the coming weeks, as we read more of Joshua, there are a whole load more really tricky passages. There's a lot of battle, a lot of death, uh, and all of it seemingly in the name of this loving, merciful God that we believe in. Uh, and so we've been chatting uh, a little bit about this, uh, and in the next few weeks, Jim and I are going to put out a little podcast um, dealing with some of these difficulties and some of the big questions uh, that it raises so that we can come to terms with them. Um, so really, that's to say, to acknowledge that the pa this passage is really difficult. It's not easy reading. Uh, it requires a little bit of digging, and we don't want to just gloss over that difficulty, but we also want to try and use this time to, to speak about what we think God is saying to us as a church together. Um, so that's not us trying to get out of uh, answering those difficult questions uh, or to ignore it, but we're, we're going to use the passage uh, today uh, and look out for a podcast that, that deals with a little bit more of those uh, tricky questions that I'm sure you all have. So what do we think God is saying to us as a church right now, thousands of years on from these events? Well, I think the key to, to thinking about what was happening here in this story is to see the bigger picture uh, of what was God was doing with this particular people in this place at this time. The events that we come to today, they're not standalone events. They form part of the bigger story that God is telling. God has created for, uh, this nation of people from Abraham. He chooses this family to be his re representatives to the whole world. And he says to Abraham, right at the beginning of the nation of Israel, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This family was chosen out of obscurity by God in order to be the way that God shows the world what he is like. He wanted this particular family to be the people that looked like God. And so God looks out for these people. He molds them and he shapes them, not because they're perfect, but because they are chosen. And then later, when God had rescued his people from Egypt and they're in the desert, they don't proceed straight into the promised land because God wants them to be a people that represent him when they enter the new land. He wants them to be a people that show the world what he is like. And he tells them this. He says, I am the Lord your God 
consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. God wants these people to look like him. God doesn't set up these laws and rules for living just for the sake of it. He wants them to live a certain way because he wants them to look like him. He wants his people to be holy because he is holy. He wants them to go into this new land and show the world what this holy God looks like. And so when he's leading the people uh, in the land uh, with Joshua, God is beginning this nation that is going to look like him. He's beginning to display to the world his people, what they look like, and they're people that are supposed to look like him. And so the holiness that God asks of his people, it's not simply a set of standards that they've got to fulfill to to rack up enough points. God has chosen these people despite the fact that they weren't the best people around, but he wants them to look like him. He wants them to be holy. This, This holiness, this obedience has a purpose. General uh, Charles Duke was an astronaut on the Apollo 16 mission to the moon. Uh, And he was once asked about his mission, and someone asked him, well, once you were up there on the moon, did you get to sort of uh, make your own decisions, carry out some experiments that you wanted to carry out? And he replied, well, sure, if we didn't want to return to Earth. And then he described this incredibly intricate plan, this exact and precise instructions, the Uh, essential discipline, the instant obedience that was needed right down to the split second to make this mission a success. He explained that when they landed, they had exactly 60 seconds of fuel remaining. These astronauts, they, they were asked to obey incredibly exact and strict instructions, not just for the sake of it, but because these instructions were part of a plan. These instructions had a purpose. God asks holiness of his people because it's part of his purpose. He wants to bless the world, to display to the nations of the earth what he is like. The call to holiness is a call of purpose. And that's why I think in this situation we find what might seem like quite a disproportionate action uh, in the grand scheme of things to this not enormous act of wrongdoing. Achan had had been commanded as part of the army of Israel to plunder the city, but he was also told to not keep the things that they plundered. And he decided that actually this bounty was quite nice, and so he took some for himself. Now, clearly that isn't great, but it's also quite hard to weigh up why plundering a city is okay, but taking some of that plunder isn't. God had given strict instructions. They were instructions that were part of a plan. They were instructions that had a purpose. And part of that purpose was about creating a community that was united, a people, not a series of individuals. They were one people. And lots of the laws that we read in the Old Testament were about how society was to be set up. And much of that seems to be about how to ensure that this uh, group of people don't just function as individuals, but function as one people. God wants his people to be the way he reveals his blessing. And his love for the world is displayed through this community of people. The holiness is displayed through this family, not through a few holy individuals. And I think it's that idea of the whole people that explains why this action gets such a strong response. Joshua cries out to God because they're no longer winning this battle. But the soldiers themselves 
hadn't done anything wrong. Joshua hadn't done anything wrong. So why did the sin of this individual affect them? Well, I think it's because of this idea of community. God wants the whole people to display his blessing. When people shift from being individuals to being a community, they move much closer together. They progress from being individuals to being a family. It's a little bit like these dominoes that I've got here. If we're set up as a series of individuals, then when one falls over, nothing happens to the other ones. They act totally independently. But, if I can do this quickly on a quite wobbly table, uh, once this is formed into a community, once the people are together, then when you affect one, it affects all of the others. I didn't do anything to this one at the end, but it was affected because one of the whole was affected. When we're formed into a community, we're drawn closer together. The closer we become, the more effect things have on us as a whole. God was forming this community, and so when one of them sinned, the rest of them felt the effects. It's perhaps why there was such a strong response to this sin. The sin needed to be removed, otherwise it would have affected the whole community. God was creating a display of holiness and blessing from the, for the world. And if part of the community wasn't displaying that blessing, then the whole community wasn't displaying that blessing. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes this, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. The smallest uh, of impurity can affect the whole. The sin of one individual can pollute everything that's connected. And so God needed to deal with this sin in order that the rest of the community wasn't also polluted. These people were to be the image of God in the world, not as individuals, but together as one. And the way we talk about this in modern society is perhaps in the language of culture. In the business world, there's this famous saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Even if everyone is heading in the right direction, if the culture of the uh, organization isn't right, then the overall mission isn't going to get achieved. And I think that's really vital for us as a church too. As we begin to step into the promised land of the salt house, is our culture right? We can try and do all the things we do as a church, but if we have a culture that doesn't look like the kingdom, then all of our activity won't actually communicate what God is like. When we look at the sin that Achan committed, well, what was it about? He took some of the plunder for himself. He hid it under his tent, away from everyone else. Ultimately, the sin that he committed was selfishness. The culture that that set is, if it isn't dealt with, it's a culture of every man for himself. It's a culture of selfishness. It's a culture that ignores this community in favor of the individual. And you can see that if the purpose of God was to create a community caring for one another, displaying God's blessing through the shared life of the nation, then a culture of individualism would have totally derailed that purpose. Now, we as a church, we're called to be a holy nation, to be a people who together display the love of God. If we allow a culture of individualism to set in, then no matter what great strategies we have, no matter how many great events and courses we put on, our ultimate purpose is going to be undermined. We're to be a people who aren't looking out for ourselves, but a part of a family. 
a people who share in one another's joys and struggles, a community defined by our love for one another. And so as we begin moving into the Salt House, not only will we have a nice new home, we also have an incredible opportunity to display in this city what it looks like to be a community in which everyone plays their unique part to see lives and communities transformed. Each of us have a role to play. Each of us is involved in this family together. And the culture we want to create at St. Swithin's is of each of us encountering the love of God, each of us living lives transformed by God's love, and each of us going out into the world to display that love to others. All of us are part of that mission together. All of us are involved. We're disciple-making disciples, all of us being helped to grow in our faith and all of us helping the others to grow in their faith. And so in a few weeks' time, we're going to be inviting loads of people from the city to come and celebrate Easter with us. We're going to step into a new phase of our ministry together where we can use the blessing that we've been given as a blessing for the city. Each of us are part of this church, and it's the church that is going to display God's love to the world. And so perhaps as we prepare, it's a good time for each of us to look at our own involvement, our own relationship to the community. We want to do this together, and that means each of us playing our part. The story from the very beginning has been for God to use his people to display his blessing, first through the nation of Israel and now through the church, the body of Christ. All of us are part of this announcement of God's love and blessing. And so let's make sure we're all involved. And it's also a really good time for us to examine those areas of our lives where we aren't living holy lives. We want to root out that stuff that stops us looking like Jesus. And that isn't to say we're supposed to be perfect, that's, that's impossible, but we are to take our role as the people of God seriously. We're supposed to be a people called to holy lives, and perhaps particularly in this season of Lent, we have an opportunity to prepare ourselves and to get rid of the sin which so easily entangles us. That's not to say we want to create a culture of, of guilt, but we do want to take our role as a holy people seriously. We won't always get it right, but we don't want to ignore sin and let it become part of our culture. Now, I've confirmed with Jim that we're not going to be uh, reintroducing stoning uh, as a punishment, which I'm sure you'll uh, be pleased to hear. We're not living under that law anymore. We're, we're living in the new covenant. We aren't supposed to punish ourselves with when we get stuff wrong, but we are supposed to urge one another on to live lives of holiness, lives that look like God. Now, the way that God dealt with sin then was very different to how God deals with sin now, and for that I'm very grateful. Uh, God chose Joshua to lead these people in holiness, and he was clear about sin, and the consequences were severe because this was the people who were to display what God was like in the promised land. God later in the story sent another Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. He shares the name of this one who led the people into the promised land. And Jesus, like Joshua, came to lead the people of God as a holy people, displaying God's love and blessing to the world. Now, Jesus, of course, was different. He was the son of God. 
he was perfectly holy. And rather than punishing those that got it wrong, Jesus took the consequences of sin on himself. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus dealt with sin for us. He took all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame onto himself. And in exchange, he gave us his righteousness, his holiness. In Jesus, God came and put himself in the middle of the community. He came close to us and took the consequences for us. And we're invited now to participate in Christ, taking on his holiness. We are still called to be a holy people, but we do it because Jesus is present with us by his spirit rather than by our own uh, efforts. Now, Miriam Swaffield talks about holiness like this. She says, we often think about holiness a bit like a pair of skinny white jeans, nice and clean, but difficult to keep clean. Now, I don't own any skinny white jeans, but I'm sure Josh will be able to uh, <laughs> confirm that this is true. <laughs> and with that view, oh, sorry, that was, that was just too fun. Um, if we have that kind of a view of holiness, we can end up quite scared about sin and about the things that might get us dirty. We might not want to be around those who are sinful because they might get us dirty as well. But Miriam says this, she said, instead of thinking about holiness like that, we think about holiness as the bleach that made the jeans white in the first place. Holiness is the agent which makes things clean. And we've been given holiness. We've been made clean by the presence of the one who is holiness himself, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And if we start to think about holiness like that, then perhaps we take a different approach. It's not that now we have access to the bleach, we just go around and roll in the mud because we've now got a way of getting clean. But we don't have to have guilt and shame anymore because we can be made clean. We're made clean by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And we now have access to the bleaching agent. We have the presence of the Spirit with us. We can take that to all the places that need making clean. We can offer the holiness of God freely to everyone because Jesus has given us access to the one who makes all things new. By the presence of the Spirit in the church, we are now a holy people, not because we don't do anything wrong, but because we have access to the one who is holiness himself. He makes us clean. He gives us the power to bring that cleansing to the world. We're called to be a holy people because we are those who carry the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. And so as we prepare to step into a new phase of this church life in a few weeks' time, we want to focus on holiness. Holiness that comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. The obedience that God calls us to is not about following a set of rules, but it's obedience with a purpose, the same purpose as God has always had, to use us, his people, to display his love and his blessing to the world. So as we step forward, we want to be a people who are obedient to the Holy Spirit, walking in step with him, full of his presence, so that we can take that cleansing effect with us, allowing all those that we minister to to find healing and wholeness in Jesus. God calls us for a purpose. He wants us to display his love and his blessing to the world. He calls us as a people, together in community, spurring one another on, each playing our unique part. 
And he calls us to be filled with his presence, to be holy because of the presence of his Holy Spirit, empowering us to see lives and communities transformed.